Good morning, everyone. So I'm going to uh, be preaching on Matthew chapter 22, verses 35 through 40. The title of my sermon is Love Yourself, Really? So I'm going to read the passage which forms the basis of today's message, and then I'll pray, and then I'll preach, okay? So if you want to follow along either in your bulletin or for all the hip young people on your cell phone, um, I have it on my cell phone, and I started to bring it out just to show you that I was hip. It's just I can't read it. So I'm going to read it from my text. A lawyer asked Jesus a question in order to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, depend all the law and the prophets. So let's pray. Uh, dear God, we ask you to be with us this morning as we collectively study your word together. We understand that listening is not learning and talking is not teaching. Uh, we don't want to talk, we want to teach and we don't want to just listen we want to learn so we ask the spirit to open our minds and calm our hearts that we would each learn whatever it is you wish to impart to us this morning in the name of Jesus Christ amen so I want to start off this message with a photograph designed to touch your hearts that's our dog, one of our two dogs. His name is Boone, like Daniel Boone. Boone just celebrated his 10th birthday in April. We've had him since he was six weeks old. He speaks four languages. So we take, now I wanna show you the next slide. That's a foxtail. So we take Boone and Lucky. Lucky is a dog that our son rescued in China. And her Chinese name is Xin Yuen, which means Lucky. So we call her Lucky. Uh, and we take them for walks every morning and every afternoon. And around our neighborhood, there are all these foxtails and the dogs love to walk in the foxtails and we're always trying to keep them out of the foxtails because the foxtails can get between a dog's toes or in other parts of the skin and the danger is if you don't get them out they can work into the body and create infection and even death. We have spent over the last three years at least $2,000 trying to protect 
boon from these foxtails and getting them out uh, between the toes, and it's, it's always a problem. Um, and uh, so these foxtails, the, the barbed head, um, can work inside the body. And when we're with him, we have to watch him, and there are two giveaway signs that he might have a foxtail. One, if he's limping. If we see any kind of limp, we, we go and we start looking through the toes right away, see if we can get it before it goes in any deeper. And the other is the sniff test. I'm going to warn you, it's a little disgusting. So you pick up his paw and you sniff it. Ordinarily, you won't smell anything. But if there's beginning of infection, when you get your nose to it, you know it. Time to get Boone to the vet. Um, and this is a serious problem, so we try to take, really stay on top of it. So the passage that we just read, which forms the basis of our lecture, uh, is the reason I'm bring up this story about the foxtails. In our present culture, the passage that I quoted is generally misunderstood. Uh, false beliefs are like foxtails. Uh, they work themselves into our thinking, causing infection and worse. They can lead us into thinking that things which are harmful to us are not harmful to us, when in fact, these false beliefs are harming our spiritual well-being. So the, we all know that there are actually 10 great commandments in the moral law. And Jesus summed them up. So when the trickster came to test Jesus, what's the great commandment of the law? He took the first four commandments and he summed them up by saying, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. And then Jesus answered a second question, which the man did not ask. And that is, the second great commandment is like it. You'll love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said, Deed on, uh, these, on these two commandments hang all the law. So here is the fox tale for us. We think we have to learn to love ourselves first and foremost in order to be able to love our neighbors. That's the foxtail. And today, we're going to try to get at it before it infects our thinking too much. So our next one, here's some choice quotes about loving yourself, which are out of our culture today. Fly. First love yourself. Others will come next. Or love yourself first, and everything else falls into line. Uh, loving ourselves works, works miracles in our lives. Next. Your relationship with yourself sets the tone for every other relationship you have. Love yourself first because that's who you'll be spending the rest of your life with. Loving yourself isn't vanity, it's sanity. Next, 
What if you simply devoted this year to loving yourself more? We must fall in love with ourselves, says Mae West. I don't like myself. I'm crazy about myself. Falling in love with yourself first doesn't make you vain or selfish. It makes you indestructible. And then lastly, um, oh, that was lastly. You may not realize it, but those beliefs, those exhortations are performance driven. I remember we keep on the one hand telling ourselves, I'm going to be all that I can be. I'm going to be the best at this, the best at that. It sets up such unrealistic expectations. Um, I remember praying with my wife in our bedroom one day, and this is like 30 years ago. And so we were going back and forth. I'd pray, then she'd pray. And so I'd pray, Lord, please make me the best trial lawyer in San Diego. Uh, I was a trial lawyer for 27 years. And when I prayed that, I could feel my, my wife looking at me. And I opened my eyes and I looked up at her because she was on the other side of the bed. And she was looking at me with horror. I said, what's wrong? She said, well, I don't know if I can join you in that prayer. I said, well, what do you mean? She said, well, I don't know that God wants you to be the best trial lawyer in San Diego. And I, in a very godly way, said, what do you mean God doesn't want me to be the best trial lawyer in San Diego? She said, he, he wants you to be his man. Oh, I was offended. I mean, I'm the breadwinner. I got to be the, anyway. That's that unrealistic expectation. It's performance-driven. I'm a good trial lawyer, but I definitely wasn't the best. Becoming everything you can be is a trap because we invariably compare ourselves with others. If we compare ourselves with others and we come out on top, then the problem is leading to pride and self-satisfaction. We begin to look down on others. It may not be overt, but in our heart we do. But if we swing to the other extreme and we compare ourselves to others and we're not as good or we don't perceive ourselves as good in skills, in beauty, in physique, in intelligence, whatever, then we become, we, we, we tend toward becoming sullen or depressed or upset. It's a danger. There's another danger to this way of thinking. And the first danger is it turns the Ten Commandments on their head. The greatest commandment, Jesus said, summing them all up, is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And that commandment is actually a summation of the first four commandments in Exodus 20. You shall have no other gods before me. You won't make any idols. You'll not take the name of the Lord in vain, and you'll honor the Sabbath. And Jesus said, no, that's the greatest commandment. 
And then he answered a question that the man did not ask. He didn't ask, well, after that, what's the next great commandment? Jesus volunteered it probably because this is what the hearer needed to understand. Um, and he said, love your neighbor as yourself. And that was a summation of all of the other commandments in the moral law. So the first four dealt with God, and the next six dealt with our relationship with men. Um, honor your father and your mother. This is AJ's older sister, but she's like a mother figure in his life, so that's why I was doing that. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness, and you shall not covet. So Jesus said, if, if I take the Ten Commandments and sum them up, well, the first of those ten, the great one, is you love God more than anything else. And the next group can be summed up you just love them the way you love yourself. Now, the modern way, these commandments, the six that deal with people, are all other-directed. None of them are self-directed. They are, they are, they make our self-opinion, that is, what we think about ourselves, irrelevant. It is not part of the equation at all. It's what we think about and how we regard others. That's the key. Uh, and we cannot delay obedience until we learn to love ourselves. We cannot say, well, I'll obey these things after I have a higher opinion of myself. That's not the commandment. Second, the modern thinking about loving ourselves flies in the face of Scripture, all Scripture. For example, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And that's not saying blessed are the depressed. Poor in spirit are those who realize that they are morally bankrupt and absolutely dependent upon God for all things. That is a blessed state to realize I'm a sinner and I need a savior. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We look at Paul's own life when he first began his journey as an apostle, in the early part of his ministry, he said, I'm the least of the saints. Halfway through his ministry, as he matured in the ministry, he described himself as the least of the apostles. And at the close of the ministry, after decades of walking with Christ, he said about himself, I am the chief of sinners. That is, as he grew closer to Christ, as the light of Christ shone more brightly in his heart, as the supremacy of Christ became more real to him, his self-opinion went down. Our problem today is we have too high an opinion of ourselves and too low an opinion of God. Third, this philosophy of life about loving yourself first doesn't smell past the smell test. I've already described the disgusting smell test we have with our dog, Boone. But we're kind of like that ourselves. It, I mean, how would you feel? Here's the smell test. Um, let's say, young lady, you're dating a guy with the intention of marrying him. 
And if that guy were to say to you, look into your eyes and say, I love myself. <laughs> and then he goes and he buys some flowers and he, he takes them to this hand and puts them in this hand and says, I just love myself. That's a marriage that probably is not going to work. Do you really want to be on the same team with the player who says, I love myself? If you're on a dangerous mission, do you want one of your mission mates to be the guy who says, I love myself? No, I mean, we, we instinctively move away from that kind of person. So let's take a look at what Jesus describes as the second great commandment, which is again, a summation of six commandments. I want to help identify and perhaps remove this foxtail in our culture. The first and greatest commandment, of course, is that we could put God first and we love him more than anyone or anything. The phrase for the second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, is not a commandment to love ourselves. Rather, the phrase is a description of how we ought to love others. Let me repeat, it's not a command to love ourselves, it's a description of how we love others. There is no commandment in the Bible that says we are to love ourselves. So, to put this in perspective, let me have this imaginary conversation with God. You say to God, God, what do you want me to do? And God says, I want you to love your neighbor. But how? The same way you already love yourself. So, if you think about it, the entire thrust of the Bible is contrary to the notion that we are supposed to love ourselves. I've already explained the, the opening beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. How about this one from Romans 12? For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he should. And this from Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. And this one from Psalm, this is David in Psalm 51, after Nathan the prophet called out David for committing adultery with Bathsheba and then, in effect, murdering her husband, Uriah the Hittite, to try to cover up the adultery. David wrote, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, God, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. The whole you can pick scripture after scripture when you think about it, where God is telling us 
to, to examine the facts and reach the following conclusion. I am a sinner and I need a savior. Jesus alone is that savior. So the rest of this message is about how to obey what Jesus has called the second greatest commandment. Again, loving yourselves is not the commandment. The commandment is to love our neighbors in the way that we love ourselves. So I want to examine six ways, uh, I'm sorry, another slide. I've been, I'm supposed to prompt them on when to move the slides and AJ is supposed to prompt me to prompt them and AJ fall, fell down on the job. I forgive you, AJ. Okay, so let's look at six ways that we love ourselves. Now remember, loving ourselves is reflexive. We don't think about it. It is ingrained in how we live. We do it automatically. And I want you, as I go through these, you, I want you to work out in your own mind, well, how does this apply to how I treat others, okay? So the first one, loving ourselves. We celebrate when God extends grace to us. Let me give an example. This just happened yesterday. I had a friend call. He was so excited. He had a big debt incurred from a surgery that was potentially life-threatening. He didn't have money to pay for the surgery. The hospital gave him incredible care, as though he were the son of the president. And then they sent him a letter that he received yesterday that said that they were exonerating his debt 100%. He owed nothing. He was excited. And I was excited for him. So we love ourselves by hungrily, anxiously, receiving the grace that God extends. We don't say to God, I don't want this lottery winnings. Second way we love ourselves, we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. And so we can love others in the same way we give them the benefit of the doubt. Third, we generally ascribe rightness to our motives. We should do that with other people. I remember when I was a very young uh, believer, and uh, I didn't come to Christ till I was 28, and um, I went to a men's retreat, and the speaker was saying, it is important to obey God. You will fail. And I'm worried about really pleasing God, and so part of me is relieved that he says you will fail. 
And then he said something that really put me in trouble. He said, but don't worry. God looks at your heart, your motives. And then I thought, oh my goodness, now I'm really in trouble. But we generally ascribe rightness to our motive. We did this not for some bad motive, not for some mixed motive. Our intention, well, that's not, I know that's what I said. How many of you are husbands? Well, you will practice this. <laughs> I know that's what I said, but what I meant or what I intended to say. You're in the workplace and you say something that comes out and everybody looks at you like you're such an idiot. And you say, well, well that's not what I meant. I didn't mean it that way. We ascribe rightness to our motives. We love ourselves by doing that. We love others as ourselves by ascribing rightness to their motives. We don't jump to a bad conclusion like Othello or no evidence and he winds up destroying his own life. Fourth, we generally expect mercy for ourselves and not judgment. The policeman stops you and says, you ran the red light. And the officers can either write out a ticket, because you know you did it. Now you may say, oh, I didn't see the light. And he starts writing out the ticket, or he says, look, I'm going to give you a warning. Please be careful, slow down. And you go, you don't say, no, 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 give me the ticket. You go, oh, thank you, officer. We expect, not expect, we are grateful and often expect mercy for ourselves when we know we deserve judgment. If you're married, this principle will come into play a lot. It is important in marriage to be able to say, I love you. Those are three important words. Even more important are the words, I'm sorry, please forgive me. And then the other words, I forgive you. Dana and I just celebrated, Dana's my wife. I married up, she married down. But that's the way it goes. We just celebrated our 48th wedding anniversary. And I, yeah, yay for Dana, yay for me. So I can tell you in time, especially in the early years of our marriage, I would really screw up. And I'd go to her and I'd say, look, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry, I know I messed up. And she would say, okay, I forgive you. And I would go, I mean, based on my background, I would go, well, is that it? <laughs> and she said, yeah, that's it. I mean, you're not, I mean, are we really okay? And she said, yeah, we're okay. And I would actually follow her around, and I would start listening. Up, so this isn't going to happen. This isn't. She said, look, I said it's okay. I forgive you. And I, I've come to take her at face value. When she says, I forgive you, she means it. So... We expect mercy for ourselves, and when we receive it, we are so grateful. How do we love others? We extend mercy, not because they deserve it, but because they don't deserve it. 
fifth, whenever possible, we take care of our basic needs. When we're hungry, we eat. When we're thirsty, we drink. When we feel lonely, we seek companionship. When we're hurt, we go to the doctor. Help others with those things. Here's the sixth one. We try to become part of community. That's how we love ourselves. So let me give you an example. How many of you have ever gone into a social gathering? Maybe it's your first year at college. Maybe it's your first day on a new job. You don't know anybody at this gathering, bunch of people around. And they obviously all know each other. You are the newbie. And you feel awkward. You feel out of place. And somebody comes up to you and says, hi, my name is Bill. What's your name? And you give your name. Come, let me introduce you to some of the other people around. And I mean, isn't that a thing that makes us feel good and pumped up? We love ourselves by letting others bring us into community. We love others by proactively bringing them into community. So I've just finished reading a book uh, about World War II. I, I'm a readaholic. I read everything. And every once in a while, my wife will walk by and I realize I have got to put down this book and talk to my wife. But man, it's not a really good part. And it's called The War Fortress. It's about the successful effort of a small group of Norwegian soldiers to thwart the Nazis' attempt to develop the atom bomb. The atom bomb was brand new technology. It was theoretically, it, it, there was a question as to whether it was possible to build an atom bomb, and if so, to build it safely in a way that it could be transported. Everyone knew that whoever built the atom bomb first would win the war. And, and in order to build an atom bomb, you have to have something that's called heavy water. Norway had the world's largest heavy water plant. When the Germans took over Norway, they built a fortress around the water, the hydraulics, the water factory. And so these Norwegians soldiers banded together with the commitment to give their lives to destroy the war fortress so that the Germans could not develop the atom bomb. The sacrifices they made, the hardships they faced were astounding. I don't know how they did it. I don't know why they didn't give up, but they succeeded. And we developed the atom bomb first. It eventually led to the end of the war. But not one of those men thought, I've got to love myself. When you read it, what comes through is there was a higher purpose. They had to sacrifice their lives for the sake of the common good. They had to save Norway and the rest of the Western world by risking their lives. And when their commander brought them together 
and explained the mission which they had to practice for three months before they went out. He said, when you sign up, you have to understand that you're signing up to die. We cannot expect to make it back. We will, but if we get there and die there, we will have satisfied our mission. And he said, I'm going to give everybody a chance to back out. And if you want to stay in the mission, come back tomorrow morning. And all of the men came back. And they enabled us to win the war. They were loving their neighbors as they loved themselves. So the question is, so what do we do? Next slide. So what do we do? How are we going to work this out? First, we must cultivate a biblically correct self-image. And that is, we are sinners saved by grace. This is an incredible message, whether you are the cat's meow, the big man on campus, or the one everybody despises. If our identity is not rooted in Christ, we are bound to be swung between poles, depending upon whether we have money or don't have money, whether we're in the right group or not in the right group, whether we have good health or bad health, whether we're a loner, whether we're part of the group or excluded from the group, whether we have a job or we get fired from a job. The biblically correct self-image is that we are sinners saved by grace and that salvation is sure. And Jesus, we look at what Jesus has done for us, we look at what Jesus is doing in us, and we look at what Jesus seeks to do through us. That means we don't have to be the best at something. We don't have to excel at something. We don't have to pretend to have it all together. All we have to do is trust the king. Second thing that we're supposed to do, we need friends who can help us identify and pull out the foxtails. So let me tell you a story. This is embarrassing for me. Don't act so excited about that. I'm sitting with Dana. I've been a trial lawyer for 15 years. I've been very successful as a trial lawyer. And uh, I turn to my wife, and my wife is probably the closest thing to a saint that I know, maybe next to our pastor. Um, I said, you know, Dana, God has really blessed me. I have not lost a trial in 15 years. And she said, of course. And I was waiting for her to bask me, bathe me in praise. I was getting all ready. Bring it on, baby. She said, of course. God cannot trust you with a failure. I'd like to tell you that I received that with humility and gratitude. 
I'd be lying. I blew up. I, was, I would not speak to her for two days. As soon as she spoke the words, the Holy Spirit told me, that's true. I knew it. I knew it was true. That's why I was so angry. Now I had to deal with the alternative. And on the third day, I went down on my knees before God, and I confessed my pride. And, I, and I, when I prayed, I used to pray before, and I turned over all my life to you, but not my law practice. I'm telling you. But after that, I said, God, I'm turning over all my life to you, including my law practice. And all I ask is that you be as merciful as possible under the circumstances. And the next 10 years were really, really hard. You need a person who loves you enough to identify and pull out the foxtails. Third, we have to practice who we are. We are children of the king. We're not white or black, we're not Hispanic, we're not Asian. Sure, that's part of who we are, but that's not who we are. We're not wealthy, we're not poor. We're not educated, we're not uneducated. We're not skilled, we're not unskilled. We are children of the king. All other identities are so far inferior to that one as to be worthless in comparison. It is not self-love that God requires. It is not self-love that defines us. It is God's love that defines us. I am who I am because God loves me and died for me. It's Galatians 2.20 that being read to us. I am crucified with Christ, yet I live, but not I, but Christ who liveth in me. Therefore I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When we realize it's God-love, not self-love, you can be you without being trapped by you. How great is that? Fourth, you love your neighbors yourself by inviting people into your life, by inviting them into community. You be the one who goes up to a stranger at church and says, hi, my name is Shane. Or at the workplace, when the newbie comes on, you say, hey, what's your job? Let me give you a tour of the office. Let me tell you what's what. Let's go out to lunch so I can introduce you so, to some of the other people. Finally, you base the worth of others on the reality and supremacy of Jesus Christ. Let me repeat that. You base the worth of others on the reality and supremacy 
of Jesus Christ. I remember reading a story of a group of men who included, I want to say it was uh, Charles Wesley, and they were going somewhere, and they were all illustrious men. And they had come to a river. It wasn't a deep river, but it was a river. And there was basically kind of a bum on the bank hoping that one of the men would give him a ride on horseback across the river. He went up to Charles Wesley and asked for a ride. And Charles Wesley lifted him up, put him behind him, and they went across the river. And on the other side of the river, Charles Wesley set him down and said, why did you come to me and not the other men to ask for a ride? And the man said, your face said yes. Now you think of that when you're in, uh, with other people. Does your face say yes? So let me close with this. On a very, very good day, I grade myself a D minus, D as in dumb, a D minus, not a B minus, a D minus on doing the two great commandments. What keeps me from despair is knowing that I have a savior who got an A plus plus and dresses me in his righteousness so that when the Father looks at me, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it is with that righteousness that we are able to go forward and deal with other people with a servant's heart. I mean, think of it. Jesus Christ came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is why Jesus is the one person who perfectly obeyed the two great commandments. The cross proved that he loved the Father with all his heart, with all his mind, and with all his strength. And the cross proved that he loved his neighbor as himself. In 1964, the first and seminal Civil Rights Act was passed. And I remember being a, um, I was a junior in high school and reading an article about an old black woman in the Deep South who was being interviewed by a reporter about her thoughts regarding the passage of the act. I have never been able to forget her words. She said, we ain't what we want to be, and we ain't what we're going to be, but thank God we ain't what we was. And so you and I 
I mean, we have, if you're like me, you have fits and starts. Some days you're good, some days you're bad. Some days you, my walk with God seems to be so strong and others, it seems so weak. But although I am inconstant, our Savior is constant. And although I fail, our Savior never fails. His love always clothes me. And he teaches me to love God, and he teaches me to love my neighbor as myself. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for the example of Jesus Christ. But if it were just an example, we would still be lost. We thank you for much more than his example. We thank you for his death on the cross in our place, that he has given us his spirit, that we might live in him and through him, that though we fail, he succeeds, and we can trust that one day we will awaken in his likeness and see him as he is. We ask you to send us forth today to love you with the heart of Jesus Christ and in like manner to love our neighbor. Amen.